Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Gianna Campa. I'm the co-founder of Blacklining, and I am a third-year student at Columbia. Um, and I'm so grateful to have Tyler Campbell with me today um, for this interview. So Tyler, please introduce yourself. Um, thank you so much, Tiana. I'm happy to be here. My name is Tyler Campbell. I am currently a senior at Columbia University. Um, I am a writer, media maker, and organizer, originally from Philadelphia, but now, you know, I'm based out of New York City. Amazing. So we're just going to jump right into the questions. Um, so what did growing up in Philadelphia mean to you? Oh man, that's that's a tough one always because it's, it's always hard for me to answer because it means so many different things for me. But I would say that it gave me my worldview, among other things. I think growing up in Philly, like, you know, five blocks from people who was living really in, you know, rough conditions and then five blocks from people who were living in really, really good conditions gave me a sort of lens on, you know, inequality and, you know, injustices across, you know, a lot of different spaces just by, you know, seeing and observing. And I think growing up, I didn't necessarily realize a lot of the things that I was experiencing and seeing because that's all I knew, you know, but as I started to get older, started to go to other places, I began to realize just how important Philly was to me, how it shaped me because I realized, you know, getting to New York, I realized a lot of places are different. But I think, you know, Philly, it gave me my compassion and my drive and I think my grittiness. I think when you come from a city like Philly, you know, it's it's always, um, um, I don't know, this kind of unifying factor of like a really hard, hard-nosed, hard-working kind of mentality because it's not a place you could kind of be in and uh, do any BS, in, if you will. Yeah, thank you for saying that. Also, um, just curious, like, um, is the street behind you like part of Philadelphia? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. I don't know. When everything went virtual, it was really weird because I was, you know, on all these places. And so I wanted to kind of, you know, have a visual representation of somewhere that I'm always at. This is a block party. I'm on 59th Street in West Philly, where um, I was actually at this Brock party. This uh, girl right here is one of my um, homies' little sisters, and um, I know some of the young boys right here playing basketball. So it's like a, a really personal kind of touch that I like to add to the you know, virtualness, which is so impersonal. Yeah, that is true. Also, that's such a nice picture. I had like not, no idea that you like knew everybody. So that's like even cooler. Um, so um, who are you as a poet? And what is your mission? Um, I think, I don't know, I kind of became a poet by accident. I think, you know, a lot of times I think poetry is a vehicle for expressing what you're kind of experiencing, what you're seeing. And I think that, you know, the world itself made me a poet, you know, it's not something that I set out to do in a lot of different ways, if that makes sense. And so I think my mission in terms of poetry is documentation. My poetry is a claim to existence. Like, you know what I'm saying? I'm always trying to say that like, we are here, we exist. Cause I feel like the reason why I gravitated towards poetry as a medium is because growing up, um, I realized a lot of the stories, experiences, people that were so, so important to me, like some of the people, you know, in this picture right here, you know, um, weren't being reflected back to me in a lot of the media I was consuming and the poetry I was consuming, even, you know, once I got to Columbia and I became, you know, creative writing major, I'm doing the work, I'm doing the program. And I realized that not a lot of voices 
from people from my city, people from, you know, the community that I grew up in, people who even are sharing stories that are, you know, somewhat akin to my own. And so that's why I thought it was so, so important to kind of begin writing myself and, you know, almost making a claim to existence, you know what I'm saying? Because I think once, you know, I'm long gone, it's not about me, it's about the stories, right? It's always about the stories and the constant pursuit of, you know, telling stories and telling them from different viewpoints. And so that's why I think poetry has always been the medium for which I've been able to do that. Yeah, like this claim to existence concept kind of goes into my next question, which is like, um, how do you combat monolithic views of um, perceptions of people in the inner cities? Um, I think the number one reason is allowing them to speak for themselves. That's a big proponent of not just my writing, but like a lot of the work that I do is allowing people to speak for themselves, right? I think no person, no matter how brilliant or gifted, um, can speak for an entire group of people. And I think there's this natural inclination that I think is going on now, especially with social media, as you handpick individuals with certain backgrounds, you know what I'm saying? And then all of a sudden, they become the spokesperson, if you will who's been not appointed by anybody, you know, on talking on all these different issues and they're like, quote unquote, an expert. And it's like, you know, I can't even speak for, you know, just the people that I grew up with, some of my homies who I really know really well, let alone just, you know, people that I've never met before. And so I think it's all always about, as soon as you get a platform, seeing who doesn't have a voice and making sure that you can pass them the mic. I think one of the things that we say in the poetry community is, hey, just pass the mic, right? And so that's one of the kind of ethos of all I do is, you know, it's, um, almost like an inversion of the seat at the table model, because the seat at the table is always about elitism and kind of excluding people and being in elite rooms. And so my method is more so trying to get a seat at the table so we can, you know, metaphorically speaking, smash that table. It's like a billion different pieces and then reconstruct it and see who's not there and make sure all those voices are being invited and included, because otherwise, you know, what kind of conversation you're going to have if you're excluding folks. And so I think you know, I've been blessed with a lot of different privileges and opportunities that a lot of folks where I'm from don't really have. And so my duty to, I, I view my duty rather as, um, you know, making sure that I can pass the mic and making sure that all those voices are elevated because I know I can't speak for everyone. Yeah, that's great. That, that sounds a lot like, like why we structure our website the way that we do um, with like not only like like academic writing pieces, quote unquote, you know, but we do poetry, we do videos, um, all that different type of stuff, because you truly can't represent anything with like one medium or person. So yeah, I completely agree. And like more people should be trying to pass the mic, you know? So tell me about your uh, interview project. Um, I know you said like in, in um, incorporating other voices was like an integral part of your poetry project. So like, tell me more about like the interview process. Okay, yeah. So I personally, one of the things that I love, love to do is I love to conduct interviews, whether I'm doing academic work, whether I'm doing, you know, journalism work, because I'm also a journalist and um, whether I'm doing poetry work, I always find ways to try to conduct interviews. And so what I do is, 
Um, I always start, I like to do it like really personal. So even during the pandemic, I've been doing social distance interviews. And so the way I do it is I always start within my own network, right? So that means like my family, my friends, you know, people that I know and I'm of this kind of belief that, you know, the degree of separation between people is so, so small, right? And so what I do is I'll, you know, begin by interviewing home, my homies, people I grew up with. And then after an interview, I'll ask them, I'll be like, yo, can you give me one or two people, you know, that you think I should interview? Um, whatever topic it might be, because they've already been through the interview now and they can think in their head and then they give me two people. And I reach out to those two people and then kind of by doing that a couple, couple of times, you know, at that point, I've really expanded my network and I've tapped into a bunch of different people that I might not have met, but I'm really, really closely associated with, you know, against like people that are like, you know, some of my homies, closest friends, siblings, you know, people they work with at their job. And so that way I'm now traversing a wide range of people. And then, you know, my interview subjects are that much more rich, right? And so I kind of do that and I always like to um, offer space. And so I kind of conduct my interviews. I usually do about two or three. For any given project per person so that way because i feel like you know the first interview can always be a little awkward it can be kind of make you nervous and so i like to really you know highlight you know not just what we're talking about so if i'm doing an interview about i don't know or i'm currently working on a project that's looking at um philadelphia school students and how they've been impacted by gun violence specifically looking at the simon grad school which has had i think 36 current students and recent alumni who've been shot within the last year which is really, really astounding. And so I was looking to kind of get into that school and talk with them about that experience. And so, you know, with a project like that, right, it's like not just asking them about the really basic stuff around gun violence, but also asking about their lived experiences, what things make them happy, what things bring them joy, you know, what do they do for fun, trying to kind of create a more holistic picture of the individuals rather than just looking at, you know, whatever the interview overlying topic might be. So tell me about your poetry project, Another Day in Paradise. Okay, Another Day in Paradise. So that project is one of my newest projects. Um, I'm actually kind of make that my senior thesis capstone for um, creative writing. Um, and so I don't know, anytime I, I, I close a chapter of my life, I like to try to produce a work of creative work that kind of sums up that period. And so Another Day in Paradise is that work. Um, the title for Another Day in Paradise is drawn from um, a graphic design on a hoodie by um, somebody I knew from growing up. His name is uh, Shakar Johnson. He was tragically killed over the summer. Um, at a, he's a clothing designer, fashion designer from West Philly. And he was really big in the community, uh, made really cool clothes. He was really always just a stand-up guy, honestly. And it was really sad that he was lost this summer and he was actually killed at a block party cookout that he was hosting for the neighborhood as a kind of celebration um, for his clothing business, but also just to bring people together. So it was really sad that it ended like that. And he was a really great person. I was excited to see what he was going to do. And so I took the, the term Another Day in Paradise from one of his designs because I wanted to kind of pay tribute to him, but also to make the subject about, you know, gun violence in Philadelphia and looking at how it's impacting you know, my community and the people that I'm really close to. And so what happened was it's probably one of the most deeply personal and really um, interconnected pieces that I've ever kind of worked on. Um, it was really spontaneous. And so it began kind of with interviews because, you know, poetry can often be viewed as like a singular kind of voice thing, like the poet is writing the words. And so I started out actually doing interviews with people um, that I knew who had been impacted by gun violence in some capacity, whether they'd been shot at themselves, you know, 
anything like that as or just being inside a neighborhood because people I think underestimate how just living with the threat of daily gun violence can kind of impact how you live and how you move and you know where blocks you go to what time you're out at night you know these are things that I think are like kind of second nature to people where I'm from but I think it's you know um, a trauma response in a lot of ways and so I began asking you know, a series of interview questions to people and then I drew quotes and stories and moments from those interviews and I incorporated them into my poetry project, Another Day in Paradise, which encompasses some of my own experiences along with those of the individuals that I interviewed. And it's, um, I don't know, I think it's a really dope project. It's um, both visual as well. There's a set of pictures that I've taken of people that kind of go along with that, city neighborhoods and also crime scenes as well, kind to paint a more holistic picture around gun violence because if gun violence has been a hot topic issue not just in Philadelphia but in a lot of urban cities you know across America for the past like I want to say here since the pandemic started and they started to see a lot of different spikes but one thing I noticed was that this conversations that are being had are very as we kind of said earlier very monolithic and so my goal with this project was to bring much more humanity and much more real life experiences into you know something as nuanced and complex as you know gun violence. Yeah, I'm so sorry to hear about that. And um, that's such a beautiful way to keep us alive. So yeah, um, doing great things. Um, so um, kind of pivoting to um, another topic, can you define Black aliveness um, and talk a bit how that concept influences your writing? For sure. So Black aliveness is a term coined by scholar Kevin Koishi. I think he's currently at Dartmouth in the English department and he's kind of an African-American theorist and so Black aliveness is the idea that essentially to put it simply that Black people did not just live and die in subjugation and trauma and pain and so he's kind of inverting this infatuation with it's um, kind of an inversion of fascination with Black death. You look at like the Black Lives Matter movement and how all we're talking about is Black folks who have been, you know, killed and losing their lives. But, you know, you can't judge a person just by how they died or, you know, the last moments that led up to their death, but rather choosing to center their life, their lived experiences, and kind to look at, you know, these really traumatic moments from a different lens, right? And so what that can look like is, you know, for example, like, you know, we'll take your car, like, you know, he was killed at a party that he was hosting, which is very tragic. It's something that, you know, we can definitely talk about. But I think he also was someone who had real life contributions. You know, he was doing really positive things in the community. And so it's choosing to look at things from a more nuanced lens, looking at the bad along with the good and centering, you know, a more holistic picture of people's lives and experiences, which, as I kind of said, is the ethos of my work and why it's been very foundational in everything I've done thus far. Yeah, that, that definitely helps combat like the kind of monolithic view of like tragedy and oppression. It's, you know, there's so much joy, black joy. Does that like kind of go along with that um, concept? Yeah, I think I think it it, it it is related, but I think the problem with oh the problem that I see along with the black joy movement essentially is that black joy also kind of has the tendency to kind of not look at, you know the effects of white supremacy. And so I think Black Aliveness is saying that while yes, we can't, you know, look at how white supremacy and anti-Blackness have manifested and created these living conditions, 
But I think even in the midst of all of that, there is such joy, like, you know, cookouts and black parties, hanging out with your friends, you know what I'm saying? Going to church with your grandmama, you know what I'm saying? Like that plate of food that your mom makes for you when you come home and you visit, you know, playing basketball at five on fives to pick up, you know, like those is like the real moments of, you know, joy that I think are also inside of these communities. Cause I feel like, you know, this, this kind of, idea when you're from the outside looking in that, that you know everything is bad and life is really hard and it sucks and it's like you know but we had a good time and there's a lot of beauty inside of these places that's why you know you look at like gentrification like why do people want to come and live in these neighborhoods you know and it's because you know there is such a, a vibrant culture there is such a huge thing that you can't emulate or copy and go anywhere else you know and that's why I think it you know it's both and rather than either or. Do you want to talk a little bit more about gentrification? Um, I mean, yeah, gentrification, oh, man. I think that's a whole different topic in and of itself. But I mean, it's just, uh, I don't know. So, I mean, you look at West Philly in particular and like University of Penn's relationship with West Philly and how it's kind of, you know, really just continued to eat away at some very historically Black neighborhoods and communities like, you know, I think people don't really understand. They think gentrification is just like when, you know, new buildings pop up, you get start to see a couple of sweet greens, a bunch of Starbucks, but really what it is is erasing culture. It's erasing memories, right? So like playgrounds that I grew up on don't exist anymore. You know what I'm saying? Schools that people attended don't exist anymore. You know what I'm saying? Neighborhoods, staples, places that have been there for years aren't even there anymore now in places, just some modern looking building, you know, people can't even really enter. And it's like that to me is like one of those things, like, you know, can my kids come and see places that were instrumental in my upbringing, you know? Those are like questions that I think are really, really important. And I think that's one of the understated impacts of gentrification. But then also I think when you kind of look at gentrification from a cultural standpoint, what happens too is you see people who are moving into neighborhoods who haven't been a part of those neighborhoods and those communities, and now all of a sudden they have different rules. And so then you see the rules and the customs in the neighborhood begin to change, right? For example, like if people every, you know, Saturday evening like to play, you know, music really loud and we have like neighborhood parties, they kind of get together, people drink, they have a good time, there's food, right? But then when you have people moving in from outside the community, what ends up happening is they don't like that. And so they start filing noise complaints. And then the police come, the police start shutting down these parties and these kind of rituals that have existed inside of these communities for decades, you know? And it's like, now that's just not a thing anymore. You know, people like to, you know, have parties in the local park areas and they start calling up the parks and rec company and they're saying, hey, you know what, you need a permit for this. And, you know, you've never needed a permit for that up until this point. But now that these new people are in here, they're trying to have a different set of rules. And so now you see the community start to change and you see start to think the values start to change with that. And I think that's the real tragic part of gentrification, aside from people also being pushed out from the neighborhoods, the people that make these communities special in the first place. Yeah, that is that is so like it must be hard to like look back and see all these places, you know, disappearing, you know, before you. I like, can't even imagine. Crazy. Like that's what happens every time I come home from Columbia is different spots. Mm -hmm. Just like going, I'm like, I'm calling my mom, like, yo, mom, like when they put this here, like when does Target get there? Like, you know, you looking up and there's all these different places, you like, yo, what? Like mm -hmm. You know, there's this places that I, I've always taken for granted are just gone, you know, and it's like, mm -hmm. and there's just a few short years that I've been to Columbia, so many places have changed, and it's like, wow, you know, it's just, it's heartbreaking for sure. Yeah. Um, 
So, you know, pivoting away from gentrification, thank you for like your words on that. Very like illuminating and, you know, offers like a great perspective on it. Um, so uh, I would love to hear the story of people reciting poetry um, amidst chaos of police violence at a protest that you were at. Um, yes, I mean, after, you know, George Floyd was killed, summer 2020, um, a lot of places erupted. Philly was one of those places that where everyone was taken to the streets, it felt like. And of course, I was out there with everyone because I can't not be with the people in the community always. And so I was out there. One of the things that was most striking is, I mean, just first off, the response from the Philadelphia police was insane. Like they had like National Guard was there. They had like literally military tanks just posted on the block. Like I went to Wendy's with some of the homies just trying to get a four for four, you know how we do. And when we went, it was just this huge military tank just there. And it was so, so like crazy for like military occupation for sure. But what happened was, you know, in the midst of all this chaos, in the midst of all these protests, there were folks literally circled around and they were reciting poems. And to me, that's one of the powers of poetry. People often look at you and go, well, what does poetry have to do with anything? Poetry doesn't really mean anything, right? And I think poetry definitely can't stop a bullet. Poetry can't, you know, ban legal chokeholds by police. Poetry's not going to free the homies who might be locked up in state prison. You know, poetry can't do any of those things, right? But poetry, I think, in a lot of ways is the lifeblood and the energy of a movement. And I think an example of that is, you know, while we were at this process, folks are, you know, could have been doing anything, right? But they were choosing to, like, you know, recite poems from, you know, Mary Baraka, Sonia Sanchez, Morgan Parker. And, you know, in reciting these poems, I think we were using those words as our safeguard. And I think it was such a serene moment that I was kind of witnessing amongst all this chaos. It was so, so crazy, but also really kind of helped shape, you know, a lot of my views and like confirm a lot of beliefs. For me. So it was a dope experience and it was very, very common. Like, you know, I've been to a lot of protests in my time now, you know, and just haven't seen all that. It's, you know, it's a very regular experience. And I think there's a reason for that always. Yeah, I, I agree, like, poetry can't directly stop anything from happening, but it can bring people together in ways that, like, other forms of writing, I don't think, can. Um, just, like, expose, like, the human soul in a way that, like, other writing can't. Um, yeah, one of my homies, my mentor, his name is uh, Tango Isaac Martin, he always says that, you know, poetry is one of those key educational tools because, you know, it's the voice of the oppressed because, you know, to publish a long form, you know, nonfiction, fiction book, you have to have time, you have to have an editor, you have to have all these things, but you know, you can write poetry on the bus on your way to work, you know, at six in the morning, you can write poetry in the break room at, you know, your job, you know, on a napkin, you know, you can write poetry very much in a very quick way. And that's why it's so much more accessible to, you know, working class folks, folks who got lives, folks who got things going on. Cause I think writing especially was always historically, you know, look, looking back, you know, like the folks like Aristotle was founded upon wealthy class individuals having the time to kind of write and like write down their doctrine and their beliefs. And so it's always had this elitist exclusive behavior, but I think poetry is kind of the one genre that is like an exception to that in a lot of different ways. And I think about like, you know, a lot of the homies that are in prison right now can't participate in the protests, can't get on the phone and call, you know, state senators, can't, you know, show up to the town halls, can't, you know, do any of those things because they're, for, um, they're currently incarcerated, right? But they can read the poem you know and these are ways that we can kind of bridge gaps and kind of keep a movement going keep everyone on the same page I think which I think is really really underrated mm, yeah very true and 
like yeah it makes me sad when people write off poetry because like truly like it can mean so much um so yeah thank you for sharing that um um now going to kind of your work with the justice ambassadors youth council what have you learned from the work with that organization um, so I guess just briefly to explain the Justice Ambassadors. So the Justice Ambassadors is a unique platform for New York City young people ages 18 to 24 who are formerly justice involved or formerly incarcerated to participate in an eight week course um, with city officials So city officials. So in previous um, iterations of this course, we've had individuals from NYPD, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, um, the Department of Education, um, um, New York City, um, what is it called, NYCHA, which is the housing development, um, all these individuals who are essentially governing the lives and creating the policies that impact, you know, the most vulnerable young people in these urban communities, um, are now all of a sudden in the room with the people whose policies are impacting them. And so what happens in these spaces now is it's a really discussion-based kind of course that allows for the really brilliant sharing of ideas. Um, there hasn't ever been, um, at least to my knowledge, um, a kind of setting where individuals who've been directly impacted by the system can really voice their opinions to the people who are governing those systems. And so I think one of the things that I learned from that is conversation is the first, first thing I think, you know, now, especially looking at, you know, cancel culture and clickbait and how everyone is kind of wants the real simple truth and wants everything to be so black and white. And like, if you say the wrong thing, you're immediately canceled. And I think one of the problems with that is now we don't have any open, honest conversations. And so one of the things that I learned as, you know, the instructor and lead facilitator for the Justice Ambassadors is that, you know, even though I'm supposed to be in some of like a, a teaching kind of role, I learned so much just by watching the conversations unfold in front of me and people were, you know, disagreeing and it really got intense at times. But one of the things that I realized when we kind of came out of that experience was that, you know what, things are so much more nuanced than what we possibly believe. And I think that if we're not collaborating on trying to find solutions, then we can't possibly begin to make a change. And I think it's like so much of writing off the other side or looking at people as cogs in the system, which they very much might be. But I think that, you know, we don't begin to have those conversations and really get the people in the rooms who have those experiences to voice those hard truths. And we can't even begin to, you know, change the system at all, let alone, you know, upend it. That's like so interesting and not what I thought it would be. And I'm so like in awe that like these people like are able to come together and have like conversations, you know, when, you know, from like perspectives of like, you know, social media and everything, like they're supposed to be enemies, you know? Um, and like, yeah, they may all be cogs in a system, but you know, everyone is like an individual as well, so like you know like you were saying before about like representing like every different person's perspective like that's so important too yeah so. i think that's another thing that i learned from us so one of the coolest stories we have from that class is we actually had a young person young man in the justice ambassadors who was in the course with the district attorney who actually or the prosecutor who sent him to prison several years prior mm -hmm. And so that was a very intense dynamic and we made the choice to partner them together, you know, and have them really trying to, you know, reach an understanding and talk about what that sentence and him going to prison did to him and also like, you know, 
the falls within those systems and those two individuals were able to kind of co-develop a policy proposal um which is actually now being implemented as we speak which is really really dope right and so i think you know collaboration can be really great results and on top of that right if we're not having conversations can't nothing we can't have a change right it's impossible mm-hmm. to, to do that and i realized that you know one of the hardest things i had to realize from this experience was that these systems are very, very corrupt, but they're also corrupt with within so within within beyond understanding, right? Because I think like you know, being in a room with high officials, you get to understand how you know institutions like the New York Police Department work. And so one of the things that I learned is actually one of the most diverse police departments in the country in terms of its ranks. It's majority of people of color, majority of people who are from low-income urban communities, majority of these people, you know, are actually from the very communities which they're policing in and have those lived experiences of the people that they're now arresting, which is very, very interesting. Because I think there's this perception that, you know, police are, you know, just white people who might be from the suburbs and are like very racist. And not to say that the police are racist because, you know, I really believe they is. But one of the things that's interesting is that, you know, it's not as simple as, oh, we need to get them racial bias training. Oh, we need to, you know, kind of look at how they do stop and frisk because, you know, the NYP has these all these things in place, which is why I think, you know, abolition is the only route we can go because it's a cultural problem and a systemic problem and a systemic problem. Mm, yeah, that makes so much sense. I had no idea that the NYPD was so diverse and yeah, yeah it goes on paper, to- on paper, they're doing everything right, but yet we still see all these, you know, injustices <laughs> coming out. And so it's like, how the hell is this happening, you know? Yeah, because it's a system. Like, it's like it's it's meant to be that way, and that's why mm-hmm. even paper they pass all the checks, they do all the right things. It's like oh, it's still going to come out, and it's still going to destroy our communities because that's ironic, not ironically, unfortunately, what it was meant to do always. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So, how do you think youth advocacy can help end the school to prison pipeline? It's like I said earlier, you know, just trying to empower the people who are directly inside of these experiences to then begin to speak out against them. I think it's one thing for somebody to speak out about something that they've read about, something that they've heard about, you know what I'm saying? These are really trying to empower the young people who are currently in those systems, right? And currently, you know, walking through those metal detectors and currently seeing those law enforcement officers and those police dogs in the lobbies of their schools, right? And I think that that's so, so important. And I also think, right, we have to arm them with the education of what they're really facing. Mm-hmm. I think is really, is criminal to me that, for example, like at a place like Columbia University, we could sit and theorize all day about the evils of the school to prison pipeline, you know, and just like five blocks away at PS, you know, 109, those kids who are actively inside the school to prison pipeline and being made victims of these exact same things we're talking about every single day have no knowledge of you know, and there's not being any conversation, there's not being an education process about, hey, this is what you're going on, this is how the system is set up to impact you, right, and so to me, that's why we, youth advocacy is number one, you gotta tell these kids what they're dealing with, right, I think there's this tendency to think the kids can't handle certain information, or the kids aren't ready for certain things, I think that, like, that leads to, like, a lot of adults lying to kids, man, as someone who, 
in youth services and talking to young people all the time. And I'm not in the business of lying to kids. You know, I can't do that. So I'm always about telling the truth when it's hard, when it's, you know, something that's really tough to hear, but that's what they need to do because those are the people that are going to make the changes. And that's why we always like to empower them like that. Because otherwise, man, who we have making these decisions, you know? Yeah. I'm like, like as a, like a psychologist myself, like, and like, well, aspiring psychologist, um, I know that like kids are very resilient and like to learning new things, like, you know, even though they may be dark, if they have like the correct guidance and like, it's not stated in a way that's like awful, that they can handle a lot of things and they deserve to know a lot of things because it actually can help them like develop and grow and like form like healthy mindsets in the future instead of like internalizing you know things that you know messages that they may be inferior from like white supremacy um if they know what they're up against then they'll internalize that way less you know you hit it right in the head yeah exactly that's a hundred percent perfect all right, well, that is all the questions I have. I feel like I could learn like so much, you know, for hours, but yeah, that was all the questions I have. And um, thank you so much for talking with me um, and being on Blacklining. And like, I hope that so many people can hear what you have to say. So thank you, uh, it's been an honor. I'm just sharing space with you, even virtually like this has been, a really dope experience and I'm you know perpetually in all the work that you and everyone at Black Lighting is doing and I'm oh, really glad to be a part of it. Thank you so much. All right. All right. Bye buddy. <laughs>